welcoming you to chapter 181 of the History of England. By 1912, the Union of Britain and Ireland was back on the agenda because H.H. Asquith's Liberal government could only stay in office thanks to the support of Irish nationalist MPs led by John Redmond, the one-time friend and colleague of the giant of Irish national aspirations, Charles Stuart Parnell. The backing came at a price, and the price was Irish Home Rule. That meant Dublin getting back the Parliament it had lost over a century earlier, giving Ireland a limited level of control over domestic issues while keeping it within the British Empire. The arrangement between Asquith and Redmond was downed by the Unionist opposition as a corrupt bargain. In 1912, incidentally, the two parties in that opposition, the Conservatives and the Liberal Unionists, decided that their partnership had grown so close that they might as well merge into the Conservative and Unionist Party. That's still the official name today of what we generally call the Conservative Party. However, I'll keep referring to it as Unionists when dealing with Ireland, since that was the stance it took in opposing Home Rule. When Asquith was thrown into dependence on Irish votes in the elections of 1910, he knew he had a mountain to climb, given the huge Unionist majority in the House of Lords. One of his motives for pushing the 1911 Parliament Act was to eliminate that roadblock to Home Rule, since the Act made it impossible for the Lords to do more than delay legislation for two years, at the end of which adoption by the Commons alone would be enough to send it to the King for royal assent and therefore to become law. That's why the new leader of the Unionists, Bonalore, described the measure that became the Parliament Act as the Home Rule in Disguise Bill. Asquith's government submitted the third Home Rule Bill, Gladstone had tried and failed twice before, to the Commons on the 11th of April 1912. There was little enthusiasm for it in Britain. Countries dislike losing territory. Think of the bitter civil war the United States fought between 1861 and 1865 to prevent southern states seceding, to this state the war that cost most American lives. Many in Britain would resent conceding even limited autonomy to Ireland. In Ireland itself, there was a huge majority in favour of Home Rule. However, there was also a substantial Unionist minority against. It was concentrated in the northeast inhabited by the descendants of Presbyterian Scot settlers who turned up over three centuries earlier, driving many Catholic inhabitants off their land as part of a colonisation plan to weaken Catholic dominance in the country. That created facts on the ground, like Israeli settlers in the West Bank today, since generations later, the land they'd occupied was clearly their home and they had nowhere else to go driving them away in their turn would be as cruel and hard to justify as the initial colonisation had been. By 1912, four counties out of the nine that made up the northeastern province of Ulster, Antrim, Armagh, Derry and Down, had substantial Protestant majorities. Two others, Fermanagh and Tyrone, had some six Protestants for every five Catholics. In the final three, Cavan, Monaghan and Donegal, Catholics were in the majority. Overall, the nine counties had a Protestant majority of about 56%, and in the December 1910 general election, they returned 17 Unionist MPs to 16 Nationalists. 
Outside Ulster, Unionists represented only about 10% of the total population of the rest of Ireland. Electorally, the South and West was entirely nationalist territory, except for the University of Dublin constituency, which elected two MPs, both of them Unionists. One of them was Edward Carson, the lawyer who demolished his fellow Dubliner Oscar Wilde in court and who later became a hammer of Irish insurgents when Arthur Balfour had been in charge there. The Protestant community in Ulster had lorded it over the Catholics for centuries. Few people who've held abusive power over another community liked the idea that the tables might be turned against them, as might now happen to Protestant Ulstermen if they were brought under the authority of a Catholic-dominated Dublin Parliament. Unsurprisingly, they decided to resist such a fate. Bonner Law, leader of the opposition, was a man of unusual background. He'd been born in New Brunswick, today part of Canada, though back then a separate colony, and he was the son of a Presbyterian minister from Antrim in Ulster. It's hard to imagine a man more suited to lead the battle against home rule. Battle in this case wasn't necessarily going to be purely metaphorical. In Britain, it's true, the opposition to home rule was one of words and votes. In Ireland, the opposition was more than ready to resort to force. The great Presbyterian associations in Ulster, the Orange Lodges, began to arm Protestants in 1910. That gave rise, in 1913, to the Ulster Volunteer Force, who could, if it came to it, resist home rule by military might. Army drill was illegal unless authorised by a magistrate, but in the Protestant areas of Ulster, the volunteers had no difficulty finding magistrates to grant them that authorisation. In the end, their force may have amounted to 100,000 men. That was a colossal insurrectionary force, capable of action of the same kind as Donald Trump attempted on the 6th of January 2021, but on an incomparably larger scale. The history of British power in Ireland abounds with ironies, but this sharpened them into nothing short of paradoxes. Britain had experience of meeting armed force from people who wanted to leave the empire, nowhere more forcefully than in North America. But here were people prepared to use armed force in order not to be pushed out of British rule. Would Britain have to go to war with people who wanted to stay in the British Empire, just as it had against people who wanted to leave it? There was plenty of support for the resistors, even back in Britain, up to the highest level. On the 27th of July 1912, a crowd 13,000 strong attended a rally at Blenheim Palace, home of the Duke of Marlborough. Bonner Law addressed the crowd in fiery terms. He denounced the Liberals for not consulting the will of the people in an election or referendum before pushing home rule and said of the Ulstermen, If any attempt were made without the clearly expressed will of the people of this country and as part of a corrupt parliamentary bargain to deprive these men of their birthright, they would be justified in resisting by all means in their power, including force. Asquith pressed on with the bill all the same. It could, however, be modified. Already on the 11th of June, a Liberal MP, Thomas Agar Robarts, had proposed an amendment to exclude the four Ulster counties with the biggest Protestant majorities from home rule. The amendment was defeated, but the idea of excluding at least a part of Ulster had been broached. 
It returned in January 1913, when Edward Carson, by now the Ulsterman's champion, proposed an amendment of his own, excluding all nine Ulster counties. However, that too was defeated. The Commons adopted the government's bill on the 16th of January 1913. That's nine months after its submission, such had been the debate. The Lords took just nine days to reject it. Now the process of the Parliament Act came into play. Within two years, if the government could get an unchanged version of the bill adopted by the Commons, it would be passed whatever the House of Lords had to say about it. The Liberals just had to stick to their guns and their majority had to hold for it to be simply a matter of time before the bill was adopted. Unionists had to tread carefully. What they wanted was a general election. They were steadily winning by-elections and given the widespread opposition to home rule, they had to be in with a chance in an election fought on the issue. Bonalore sympathised with the aims of the insurrectionists in Ireland, but while he could warn of the dangerous civil war, he needed to be seen to be doing what he could to avoid it. That meant showing himself open to possible compromise. Throughout 1913 and into 1914, there would be repeated attempts to find such a compromise, to put the Home Rule Bill into a form the Lords might accept, so that the government didn't have to ram it through using the sledgehammer of the Parliament Act. Edgar Robarts and Edwin Carson had opened the way to a possible compromise. Might exclusion of some of Ulster from the authority of the proposed Dublin Parliament defuse the situation? But what about Unionists elsewhere in Ireland? Lord didn't want to be seen to be turning his back on them. But then, as it became clear that Home Rule couldn't be blocked altogether, that minority in the south and west of the country began to come around to the idea that they might just have to adapt to life under a Dublin Parliament, which might not be as fearsome as they thought. That made it possible for the Unionist leaders to limit their demands to exclusion of Protestant counties. Agreeing a compromise based on exclusion suited Bonalore because he believed nationalists would reject any formula Unionists might accept. That would break the coalition with Redmond that kept Asquith in power and precipitate the general election Bonalore craved. However, Asquith was too wily to fall into that trap. The only offer he was prepared to make was one David Lloyd George had come up with to exclude the six Protestant-majority Ulster counties for six years after which they would be reabsorbed into Home Rule Ireland. That was actually something John Redmond could live with, but the Unionists would only accept permanent exclusion. Edward Carson found memorable words to sum up the objection. We do not want sentence of death with a stay of execution of six years. On the 7th of July 1913, the Commons again accepted the Home Rule Bill. Again, the Lords threw it out. So the debate reached 1914 with no further progress. It was now only a matter of months before the original bill, with no exclusions, became law. The question that arose next was, could it be enforced? It was doubtful that all British soldiers could be expected to fire on Ulstermen resorting to force to resist British efforts to move them even partially out of British rule. A series of incompetent errors by the Minister of War himself and senior generals led to officers of a cavalry unit stationed at Curra, south of Dublin, being asked whether they would be prepared to use military force against the Ulstermen 
or would accept dismissal instead. Their Brigadier General and 57 other officers, out of a total of 70, said they would prefer to be dismissed. This incident is sometimes referred to as the Curra Mutiny. In fact, no mutinous action took place and no order was disobeyed. What was much more serious, however, was that a subsequent investigation by the War Office found that a third of officers across the army would refuse to fight the Ulstermen. That chimed with senior Unionist attitudes. Bonner Law had seriously considered amending the annual Army Act. This was an act passed every year since the Glorious Revolution of 1689, allowing a standing army to be maintained, but subject to civilian control. Bonner Law and other Unionists had considered amending it to exempt soldiers from serving against the Ulstermen. However, in Britain, with no written constitution, it's decisions of Parliament that make the constitution, and the Army Act was a constitutional measure. Amendment might have brought down the government, but at the risk of triggering a constitutional crisis. Fortunately, the Unionists backed off from so drastic a step. All the same, the fact that they'd contemplated it at all, taken together with what had been found out about attitudes among army officers towards Ulster, showed how hard home rule might be to enforce. The bill was adopted for the third and final time by the Commons on the 25th of May, 1914. This time, the Parliament Act meant that it didn't go to the Lords, but straight to the King for royal assent. The last hope of the Unionists was that he might withhold assent, which he was entitled to do, since it was only a convention that had prevented any monarch doing that since Queen Anne in 1708. Wisely, he signed, and another potential constitutional crisis was ducked. So, on the 18th of September, the Home Rule Bill became law as the Government of Ireland Act of 1914. By then, though, the government had bigger fish to fry. On the 4th of August, Britain had joined what would be the bloodiest war it had ever fought. Irish legislation that it probably couldn't enforce got kicked into the long grass. After all that trouble, the act was suspended. That means we're still not done with all the troubles between Britain and Ireland and we'll be returning to the subject before long. Isn't that something to look forward to? Thanks for listening.